91.7 WVXU is proud to support this and other locally produced podcasts through its podcast network. For an easy-to-navigate curated list of some of the best local and national podcasts, visit Podcast Central at wvxu.org slash podcastcentral. Welcome to The Twelfth Story, a book discussion podcast produced by Cincinnati's Mercantile Library, where readers gather to engage, connect, debate, and discuss. The Mercantile Library is 181 years old and is the literary center of Cincinnati. Throughout the year, the Mercantile Library hosts authors and speakers, book discussion groups, and other civic events. We are a working library with more than 80,000 books available to members. We're located at 414 Walnut Street in downtown Cincinnati and online at www.mercantilelibrary.com. And we always welcome new members and guests. Joining me in the reading room on the 12th story of the Mercantile Building is Bob DeMott. Bob is a fly fisher from his teenage years and an avid upland game bird hunter. He's also a retired professor of literature from Ohio University and a Steinbeck scholar. He has written numerous professional papers and he has presented numerous professional papers, but he is also the author of books on both bird hunting and fly fishing, and an author of many articles in almost every sporting magazine on bird hunting and fly fishing. My name is Tim Guilfoyle, and I am with Northern Kentucky Fly Fishers. I have been a fly fisher for 25 years, and since I've retired in 2000. 13 for the second time, I've pretty much do nothing but fly fishing and participate in Northern Kentucky Fly Fishers, which, by the way, believe it or not, is one of the largest, I think the third largest fly fishing club in the United States. Believe it or not, we're in Northern Kentucky. So, Bob, why don't you introduce yourself? Tim, thank you very much for inviting me and uh, giving me the opportunity to talk with you uh, on the Mercantile Library podcast. Uh, I uh, grew up in, I was born in Connecticut in 1943, and I grew up there and uh, in southern Vermont. My family had a camp there in a little, tiny little crossroads town called Danby Four Corners. Um, I went to college in Massachusetts and uh, then graduate school in, in Ohio, and I've taught at, I did teach at Ohio University for almost 45 years. I started in Athens in 1969, and I retired from full-time teaching in 2007, uh, but then we had a program called Phased Retirement, which I was able to do uh, for another six years, where you only taught one term a year rather than full-time, and uh, I did that until 2013, So, uh, and I retired then completely in 2013. Um, 
And in the last couple of years before I did my final retiring, I thought I would like to do something that would look into my my earlier secret life of hunting and fishing, which I'd done since I was a, literally since I was a boy. Um, and uh, I had started by keeping uh, meticulous journals, uh, hunting journals starting in 1970 and fly fishing journals starting in 1989. Uh, and these were not just logs, but where I would just do a daily, short daily brief entry, but they were essentially kind of narrative, a narrative accounting of the day's sporting venture. And the fly fishing journal in particular uh, grew exponentially, so over the years I ended up filling about 150 handwritten pages every year. Um, and uh, I, I was just sort of sitting around wondering what I was going to do for my retirement life um, and knew that I didn't want to be bored. <laughs> so I went back and looked at a number of those journals and, and uh, out of that came a, a couple of books. One of them was a book called A Field, American Writers on Bird Dogs, which I co-edited with a, a very dear friend of mine, uh, Dave Smith, um, who at that time was uh, uh, teaching in the uh, uh, writing program at Johns Hopkins. Uh, and we collected, uh, I think it was about 28 or 29 original essays by American writers about their adventures with bird dogs. And we were able to get, uh, sell it to a publisher, Skyhorse, in New York, um, which is a, a fairly, quite a reputable outdoor publisher. Um, and other things as well. And uh, that book did pretty well, and I thought, well, maybe there's a companion involved there. So I looked at all my fly fishing journals and thought, well, there's a follow-up book, and that follow-up book was uh, I edited called A Stream, uh, American Writers on Fly Fishing. I did the same model. I had about 30 writers, novelists, poets, essayists, who uh, I knew were avid uh, fly fishers, and they all contributed original essays and did the same thing, put them all together, and Skyhorse published it, and those, both those books were, were, turned out to be quite successful. And then, uh, that was uh, 2010 and 2012, and then in 2014, both those books came out in paperbacks, which was kind of a, a testimony to the fact that they had, they had sold pretty well, so I felt that there was an audience there. And then I started working, I, then I did go back to my fishing journals, and I started working on a book that I published last year, uh, called Angling Days, um, fly, uh, fly Fisher's Journals. And that's a kind of a rendition of the literally thousands of pages of journal entries that I kept from 1989 to, to 2015. Uh, and I, I compressed them. I, I was sort of picked and choose. Some years I have two entries per, from a year. Other years I have just one. But it is sort of a chronological span from 89 to 2015. And... Uh, I worked over those, made them more like a uh, kind of torqued down essays, um, and got rid of some of the shorthand, the journal shorthand kind of stuff that only I would have been able to, to understand or read. Um, and that too became a book. Skyhorse did that as well last year, and that's uh, attracted some some attention. So, and this is all completely new to me because uh, you know I was a, a teacher for 45 years and a scholar, and we do most of our work in silent areas. <laughs> We're not used to notoriety or any kind of popularity. Um, so the, the whole uh, business with angling days and with a stream in a field has been really quite a, quite a nice uh, experience for me as I 
move into uh, geezerdom in my in my mid seventies. Now you've published, however, in magazines such as Contemporary Sportsman, Gray's Sporting Journal. Did those articles precede your books? Uh, that's a good question. Um, everything I wrote uh, for Gray's or the Contemporary Wing Shooter or Contemporary Sportsman or Upland Almanac, all of the things that I eventually published in those magazines uh, started as journal entries in my journals. Um, and uh, if it was an idea that I thought would sit pretty well as a uh, kind of a standalone essay, uh, usually I drew on the journal and then I would get it up on my computer screen and, and just re revise it, review it, you know, go through it, torque it down a little bit and give it a little bit more shape than one might normally find in an in a offhand journal entry. Uh, but yeah, I'm on, almost everything I've done in that regard has come out of those, those initial journals. I'm a, I, I would have to, I, I mentioned it in the preface of uh, angling days, I'm, I'm an inveterate journaler. journaler. And I've done, I've kept a journal, sometimes three and four and five at a time, uh, all of my, almost all my life. I did my, just my PhD dissertation on uh, Thoreau, uh, on his major works, but when I was doing my research in the late 60s, I found one of the most intriguing things about Thoreau, and the, actually the bulk of his writing efforts were in his daily journals, and I, I was just absolutely uh, profoundly influenced by that idea of keeping, uh, uh, making a sentence out of the day's events, no matter what they were. So not all of my journals have been about hunting and fishing, uh, they, others as well. Um, and I, I'm quite religious about doing that. I write in my journals every day. Uh, but the hunting and fishing ones seem to be interesting. I've talked to a number of people uh, and they always say, well, gosh, you know, I wish I'd kept journals of my fishing experiences and and because uh, I, I would be able to look back on them now and say where I was at a certain date, what I used, how the, how, what the fishing was like, and so on. And I, I started very early with Thoreau's model in mind, and I told myself that no matter how tired I was at the end of a day of fishing or, you know, walking seven miles through the hills of southeast Ohio after my following my bird dogs, I would try to write a narrative entry either that night after the dogs were taken care of or whatever, after dinner or whatever, or if I was too tired, I would do it the first thing the next morning when I got up. So I, I was able, once I, once I sort of made that uh, contract with myself, I guess you could say, I, um, I stayed with it and I have always done that. And this is, as I say, the fishing journals go back to 1989 uh, and even in the journals themselves, even though they're daily and they create a kind of narrative of the day's fishing, there are places in there where I, I spin back to, you know, 30 years earlier when I was just starting out as a fly fisherman in southern Connecticut in, in the middle 1950s. I mean, so they, they, there's not a, a distinct forward arc of chronology in these journals. It's something that, uh, like a back cast, goes, goes back and and then comes forward, and then goes forward, and then goes back again. So it's, uh, it's sort of random in, in, in that regard. But the journaling has always been, um, it's been a savior to me in a lot of ways. And I, I, I tell you honestly, after all these years, I look forward as much to writing in my journal. And by, by writing, I mean I also do things like in my fly fishing journals, I have 
I have, uh, you know, flowers pasted in. I have, uh, if there was an insect hatch and the, you know, of green drakes or something, and I, I happened to capture a couple in my little vials, I would paste one into the book, or I would take snippets of uh, pieces that I had been reading that that week or that day, and so it's 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 a whole sort of melange of not only my narrative but also photographs and. Uh, commentary and uh, oddball uh, 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 flowers, and in my bird hunting journals, I have all kinds of bird feathers stuck in there. And um, sometimes I happen to be able to, when I was cleaning the birds for for dinner, I would find out whatever was in the crop and and paste that into the <laughs> into the journal. So they're really oddball kinds of things, but but they're fun to they're fun to do. And I guess they're nowadays I I, I hear from people that. Um, uh, there's a there's a kind of a trend toward um, what are called memory books and people keeping their memories alive by either writing in them or having photographs that kind of thing and I, I feel like I I've never been a pioneer of anything in my life but I feel like I was a, a pioneer in, in keeping well documented journals uh, in that regard anyway so but it's been a lot of fun I sometimes I, I honestly admit I as I said before I look forward as much to Doing the narrative treatment of the day, as I as I do uh, of almost anything else, it's it's really a lot of fun. And and a lot of times, uh, as you well know, you know the fishing days are empty. The bird hunting days, all you're going to get is watching the bird dog work and and nothing else. But that's okay. You've always got the you always have the day's journal entries to look forward to to kind of complete the circle, so to speak, or, or or bring the arc all the all the way around from from beginning to end, which is which is nice. And then plus, I I, I freely admit that uh, you know after publishing many books over my lifetime, I'm addicted to writing anyway. So <laughs> and uh, as much as I am to fly fishing and and following bird dogs around. <laughs> Well, I've seen a, uh, an example or an excerpt from one of your journals, and uh, that included sketches. So obviously, uh, things that have inspired your writing have more to do with literature and writing and the written journals than uh, uh, complemented. Th this question um, is directed at an audience uh, that may be interested in writing. Now, you correct me if I'm wrong. From listening to you, it's my understanding that you actually began your writing career for publication later in life, not in your 20s, but, but later than that. Is that true? Well, in, in terms of the commercial stuff that I've been doing, that's, that is true. I did publish a couple of, uh, you know, I had earlier in my year, I, earlier in my career, I was... Uh, focused on writing scholarship, uh, which I did quite, quite a bit of, um, published a number of uh, books related to John Steinbeck and, and American literature. But I also published three, three collections of poems, too, so I was always heavily involved in that aspect of writing. I edited a, a poetry magazine for six or seven years with uh, my, my friend Dave Smith, who, who I most recently was a, uh, uh, editor of the Southern Review, which is one of the Great literary magazines in the United States. So I always had that 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 aspect of my life, and I did have a period in the in the late 1970s when I had been doing a lot of research uh, in among fly fishing older fly fishing books, and I discovered uh, because I had I had 
I had uh, taught a PhD seminar on the, on long poems in American literature, and one of the, it was a two-quarter seminar for PhD students, and one of the, the books that I keyed on was Ezra Pound's Cantos. And, uh, and during the time that I was sort of preparing, working up the class and so on, I discovered that Ezra Pound in one of his cantos, uh, Canto 53 if I remember correctly, had borrowed, as he often did from other sources, had borrowed uh, a good deal of information from uh, Richard uh, Charles Bolker's book on the art of angling, which was published in the mid-18th century. I found out later that Ezra Pound, who grew up in Idaho, by the way, actually did was a fisherman. Uh, I, I did some fishing, so he was familiar with fly fishing. And I, I, I wrote an article that uh, appeared in the Ezra Pound Journal, one of the most arcane, esoteric journal, <laughs> journals on earth. But someone who read it, uh, a man named Charles Frohawk, was a, a quite a well-known literature professor at Harvard. And he happened to, because he was interested in the modernist movement, he happened to read this piece of mine on, on uh, Ezra Pound and Charles Bolker, and he wrote to me and he said, you know, you should try to send this to Fly Fisherman Magazine, <laughs> they might like it. And I, at that time I thought, no way, there's no way they would, you know, a, a leading uh, commercial magazine would take a, a, an Ezra Pound article. And so I, I, just on a lark, I, I cleaned it up a little bit, took off some of the more scholarly stuff and I sent it in. And it turned out that uh, Nick Lyons, who later became one of my dearest friends and a, and a mentor uh, who ran Lyons Press. Uh, Nick himself had a PhD in English from the University of Michigan. And he was teaching at uh, Hofstra College then, but he was also running his own Lyons publishing company, which published a lot of fly fishing material. He was also on the board of editors of Fly Fisherman. And someone gave my Ezra Pound article, somehow got it to Nick, and. They said, you should read this, this might be a short, maybe we can fit it in Fly Fisherman Magazine. And Nick, uh, Nick jumped on it, he liked it a lot, and so we, we trimmed it down a little bit, and they, they published it in 1977. So I, and I often told people this was the, the pinnacle of my career. I had um, something you know, scholarly, but it appeared in one of my favorite magazines, Fly Fisherman Magazine. But it was, that was 1977, so, that, so I really didn't do much uh, you know, the stuff for Grays and Upland Almanac and, and uh, 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 the contemporary wing shooter and con contemporary uh, sportsman and, uh, and uh, the, the Yale Angling Journal, those, those things came much later. They were really at the point when I was all, uh, thinking about retiring from OU. Uh, and that, and I, all of a sudden I was, I was doing a little less of the scholarship stuff. I was doing a little less of preparing, uh, I used to work 70 hours a week in my teaching, I won six teaching awards at OU, and teaching was my, it was the center of my life, it was my life. Uh, but as I, as my career sort of, you know, last few years, I started to ease out, and I found myself with more time to really kind of look at these magazines and see what what is it that they would like. And I felt like, uh, talking to Nick Lyons and, and Jim Babb and some of the people involved in these things, I just had the sense uh, and was reinforced by their comments that they were really looking for literate uh, outdoor writing. I mean, more than just what we loosely term the hook and bullet kind of writing. Uh, I went here, I did that, I, me and Joe went fishing, that, that kind of thing. But they were really looking for things that were, were quite different. And you, you mentioned earlier uh, some of the, that, that kind of literary thing. And I, ha I have to say that the reasons my journals are so important to me is 
a number of the pieces that I've written for Gray's and other magazines, they all begin with an image. Um, and, I, and I feel in a lot of ways that was what defined, you know, I did three books of poetry, and I, a lot of my poems were defined by not a word, uh, not so much an experience, but an image I would have. And the one piece I did for Gray's two years ago uh, was an image I had that had been moving for years, and it was about coming out of the woods in uh, Athens County, where I hunted for years, around late in the afternoon after you've been hunting four or five hours with a bird dog, and having a, gr a, a grouse flush wild late in the winter, so be late January or February, against a kind of a leafless tree background, and seeing it sort of take off into the darkness, um, and knowing that even if you hadn't had any shots that day, or dogs hadn't had any points, that that bird, just seeing that bird made it the day worthwhile. And that's where that, that essay, um, it's called The Grouse in My Head, and that, that's where that essay begins. It begins with an image, that, that almost like a video loop in your head that you see going around and around and around. So I think it's important. That's one of the reasons why I love that journal, because a lot of times I'll put things in there that I wouldn't ever otherwise, I have a terrible memory. <laughs> so, and I'll be on the stream or something, I'll, I'll say to myself, gee, that's pretty neat. So I have to have a little pocket notebook with me where I can jot it down and say, remember this when you get home, maybe you can work it in somehow, and all these things somehow. Work, work together. But. So I don't want to put words in your mouth, but the reason... Go ahead, I don't care. <laughs> the, the reason that I asked the question about publications later in life is that many people uh, that I know, maybe not many, but uh, in northern Kentucky fly fishers, and in, not necessarily in clubs, but fly fishers and bird hunters um, that haven't published and they're approaching retirement and so on and so forth, but they do have some talent. Is it ever too late? No. What no, would you I'm say the first to one to say that. <laughs> no, I'm a geezer. I mean, you know, I, uh, uh, I'm i 73 now, so I started, really started all this stuff my late 60s, early 70s when I really started, fo you know, focusing on the, on, the, on this uh, more, more, you know, nationally visible kinds of kinds of publication. So it's never too late. It's never too late. You know, I think about, uh, I think about the people who I really revere. And, uh, you know, I, you can have, you know, the 20-somethings are great. I love them. But give me Guys like Yaramir Yager, who at 45 is still playing for the Carolina Hurricanes, or Gordie Howe played hockey. I played hockey in college, so these are my heroes. Uh, but also people like uh, my, my old friend, the Alaska poet John Haynes, who was writing into his 80s. Jim Harrison, who just died, who at 78 died at his desk scribbling a poem when he, when he died. I mean, Tom McGuane, who's still going on strong as ever. I mean, I, I just, I think one of the great glories one of the one of the great sort of uh, misunderstandings about uh, life in America is that you're you're only good when you're like in your 30s and 40s and 50s and you're right you're hitting your peak. God, it's not true. I mean, there's just all this stuff afterwards that comes afterwards that just as as sweet and wonderful and and inspiring too as well. You know, and so I'm I'm all I'm think I think about a writer like W. S. Merwin who's in well in his 80s still going strong. I just it's just wonderful to me. And uh, uh, just uh, Stanley Kunitz, who died at 100, and I think he published his last book at 99. I mean, this is, to me, is just absolutely priceless, priceless stuff. And our, our culture is all geared toward 
youthfulness, and that's great. A lot of innovations come from that, and we love it, but, but uh, don't count out the oldsters either. So <laughs> take note, listeners. It's never too late, and if you have something to say, say it. Right. Um, I want to uh, talk a little bit about, we, we, we hear about the fly fishing as an art, and uh, certainly your writings are an art. We rarely hear, I think I've ever heard about deer hunting as an art or bass fishing as an art, but I hear everybody refer to fly fishing, among other things, as an art. What is it about fly fishing? Well, that's the eternal question, a very difficult one. Um, I think part of it has to do with the fact that um, of all the uh, sporting endeavors, uh, and we, we can trace it back 500 years, <clears throat> um, of all the sporting endeavors, it has a, a complementary and parallel aesthetic dimension that we've been writing about fly fishing uh, for 500 years. And I, I think, I may be wrong about this, but I think it is the longest written about sporting tradition in English. In English. I think it's pro there's probably maybe even longer in some other languages. Uh, and I think from the very start, there were all kinds of, uh, at least there is in my mind, there are all kinds of relationships between the process of writing, which is not a process, and I emphasize the word process, it's not so much a product, you start somewhere and you end up somewhere. You're not always sure where you're going to end up when you when you finish that poem or, or that story or that essay or whatever it happens to be. And fly fishing is the same way. I mean, I think there is a sense in which there are so many, and this is true of all fishing. I, I don't mean to claim a, a just an, an elite status for fly fishing, but I do claim a, a sense of uh, a, a special kind of intrigue for fly fishing. I think it really has a, a kind of uh, it has a kind of cerebral component to it that I think attracts a lot of people because of its challenges and because of its variabilities. And also, I, th I think, because uh, the river, most of us, most of us, not all, all, but many of us, let me say many of us, fish in moving water. And the stream becomes a kind of metaphor for time our lives, our, our memories, our, our life histories and experiences and so on. And I think that has a, a deep kind of both visceral and intellectual hook to it that, that, keeps, us, uh, that keeps us going. Uh, there was a, 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 a British philosopher uh, named A.A. A. Luce, who's a philosopher who taught at, uh, I think he taught at, uh, if I remember correctly, he taught at Trinity College in Dublin. And he has a he has a wonderful book, and he has a line in there, and it, he says, fish and find out. I mean, in other words, there's no, there's no blueprint that is given to us from above <laughs> that tells us how to catch a trout on the Beaverhead River and, you know, the 5th of August, uh, even though we'd, we'd like to think there is, uh, how-to books aside. Uh, but you go uh, and you do what you do and uh, you work through this notion of, of uh, the fisher as he fishes. You, know, you find out what you do. Uh, Lauren, I think it was Lauren. I, I, no, it wasn't. I'm sorry. I thought it was Lauren. It was, uh, 
well, somebody, I'm now going out of my head, I'm having a geezer moment. Um, uh, somebody said, um, archae- the, there's, a, there's a metaphor in archaeology, and it's the digger as he digs, or as she digs. And you find out what you find out by digging down through the strata. And I, in the last part of angling days, I apply that to, I, I make it my own. I make it the fisher as he fishes. I mean, the idea that you, what you're going to find out that day is, cannot be pre-planned, but it's, it's given to you as you, as you fish. And there's a, there's a wonderful um, physical kind of and, and finesse kind of component to fly fishing. I think that's also one of the reasons people get hooked by it. Watching somebody cast a fly rod is really a beautiful, it's like a ballet. I mean, it has a kind of wonderful physical dimensionality to it. it has, and it's all based on timing. I, I've, I'm, a, a, among other things, a fly casting instructor, FFF fly casting instructor. And I, I, I always, when I'm teaching a class, I, I taught a class with a friend of mine for several years at my TU group in, in uh, West Virginia. And you can always tell when the guys are, are bellying up to hold on to a fly rod the first time because they want to throw it like a football or they want to, they want to throw it like they're batting the ball out of the, out of the park. And every once in a while, there'll be a woman taking those classes. And you can see a whole different approach. It's all about timing and finesse, slowing down, getting the maximum amount of leverage from the rod itself. And that is, a, to me, that's one of the great divides that is worth looking at because it becomes a metaphor for what great fly casting is. And it's even more so now with uh, so many people who are expert with two-handed rods. I mean, that, that, it's really absolutely cinematic to watch a really good fly caster with a two-handed rod, spay rod, cast, you know, 100 feet <laughs> across, a, you know, the Klamath River or something, I mean, one of these really r- r- big rivers. So there's a, there's a kind of internal beauty to it, I think, that, that really is part of that, which I don't get, uh, and I've done plenty of bass fishing in my life, which I don't always get when I'm throwing a big lure or a jig or something like that. And I've done, I've done plenty of that uh, with bass rods and spinning rods. We all started, most fly fishermen I know, at least in my time in the 1950s, started off as spin fishermen. That certainly was what I, I started with. Um, but, uh, yeah, it has a beauty to it. It has a kind of zen simplicity to it. I think that's really, uh, is very attractive. And, and, uh, and I think, too, we're in, a, we're in an age where uh, the, the monochromatic quality of institutional and corporate life in America makes these little moments of, of handcrafted beauty so much more valuable. And fly fishing has that. You can tie your own flies. You can build your own fly rods, particularly if you're a bamboo fly rod builder, which is, uses one of the, the great uh, natural materials to make, a, to make a, a, a rod that, you know, could be compared to a Stradivarius in some ways. You know, some, some, of, the, some of the modern and contemporary bamboo rod fly Maker, uh, fly rod makers were uh, exquisite artists in their own right, and yet they created this thing that doesn't just sit on the shelf. You you need it to it, to give it its dignity. You have to you have to use it, and uh, um, so and I think many, there are many places in America where people are attracted to that kind of you know hand, I call it the, sort of the handcrafted metaphor of, of existence you know we want to it's the authentic it's the it's the genuine thing that you're looking for and I think I think in a lot of ways fly fishing has it so. Bob mentioned uh, that he was a certified fly caster for FFF 
the organization is the International Federation of Fly Fishers, and I will say that um, IFFF is an organization, among other things, which is dedicated to uh, perfection in fly fishing, which is never achieved. But that test for a certified instructor is a tough one. There are not very many certified instructors in the United States, so I applaud your, uh, your effort, and I know that uh, it took you more than one try. Well, it's absolutely true. I, you know, I was actually, uh, I, I, I grew up in, the, I caught my first trout, a brook trout, in uh, the Saugatuck River in Connecticut. On a, on a streamer pattern that I had tied myself, a fly that I tied myself in 1956. And I, I, I had no mentors. Uh, the Trout Unlimited wasn't formed until 1959. The Federation of Fly Fishers didn't come in until the early 60s. So I really had no one. There was only one or two people in my family who had done some fly fishing, and, and uh, their schedules were such that I, I really couldn't depend on them uh, you know, to give me instruction. So I learned a lot of it on my own. And uh, I was self-instructed. Self, uh, uh, self the fly rods in those days tended to be fairly whippy, unlike the, the new composite graphite material that we have now, which quite a little, quite a bit on the stiffer side, very light. So I, I kind of floundered around, but I fly fished all my life. And um, in 19, about 1998 or so, I, after I had 30, uh, almost 30 years of teaching in at OU, Ohio University, I thought I might retire uh, within the next year or so. And I thought, well, what would I like to do? I would like to be able to keep writing, but I also, I love to teach. Uh, so I said, well, I think maybe I'll go to guide school. So <laughs> on a lark, I went to a two-week guide school in Wyoming. And, uh, and it was really a, an interesting experience. I learned a lot. Um, and uh, I thought, well, maybe when I retire, uh, that's a, there's a certain kind of networking there. Maybe I would be able to get on with a fly shop in, or a resort in, out west and, and be able to do what I love, which is teach. And whether it was teaching literature or teaching, you know, fly fishing, it didn't matter much. It was all about teaching, you know. Um, but then I, you know, I ended up uh, not retiring. I ended up teaching full time for about another eight years. I had graduate students I was working with. And I didn't, in the end, I didn't want to leave them. So, uh, meantime, I thought, well, you know, I, I looked around at guide school and I saw that a number of my instructors had were uh, FFF uh, casting instructors. And I thought, well, maybe I should try to get certified just because if I ever put myself on the market, I, you know, that might be an, a little extra thing to have. have. So I went, so I started in, again, self-taught. I got a couple of the FFF guides and books and videos, and I studied them, and I um, went, uh, there was a uh, master, uh, the FFF has various levels of casting instructorship, and the basic was what I was looking for, but there are master caster, casting instructors. And there was a, a man named Will Gray uh, over near Dayton, he was a master casting instructor, and I called him one day, and I said, I'd like to take some lessons with you. Can I do that? So I went over to him several times, and, and what I learned was that a lot of my self, you know, a lot of my self-created habits were very bad, <laughs> and he, he helped me correct them a lot. So, he, and we thought, well, maybe I should try taking this exam. So 
And I, I did. I went up to Michigan and took the exam. And 11 of us signed up for it. And I flunked. Nine of us flunked. And a lot of people complained about it. And I, I didn't. And the reason I didn't complain was I did fine on the, uh, on the written exam. And then you, when you pass that, you get to go and explain all these things to a master casting instructor who's looking at you with an eagle eye. So there are no, there's no transparency or you can't hide. And uh, I couldn't exactly explain what it was I was doing and why I should do it. And I thought afterwards, in fact, I wrote an essay about this. Um, I thought afterwards it, it wasn't a failure of knowledge. It was a failure of not having a narrative to explain what it was I knew. And so that's what I had to work on. I did work on it for... I think probably two more years, and finally I ended up passing it. About <laughs> well, the story. focus. But it was a great. It was great. I was glad to. You know, it shouldn't be easy. Think, so. Yeah, and the focus of that uh, certification is not only being a good fly caster, but maybe even more importantly, being a good teacher. Absolutely right. That's absolutely right. Yeah, right. And so here's a college professor who has been a teacher all his adult life. Right. And uh, he had to work pretty hard yeah, right, to right, learn how to right, teach right. the sport. Yeah, and I was very thankful that none of my students saw me flunk that, uh, <laughs> flunk that uh, practical test. But, uh, but like I say, no, I felt I deserved it. I didn't, I didn't deserve to pass. So, it's uh, good attitude. Fly fishing has had and, and still does have in many circles uh, a reputation of being... Um, an upper-class uh, activity. It costs a lot of money. You have to go out west to do it. And um, in northern Kentucky fly fishers, of course, we're in Kentucky, where there are no indigenous trout. Um, we try to emphasize to people that actually it's not an expensive sport. It doesn't have to be an expensive sport. You can fish anywhere for any species on a fly rod. A smallmouth bass can be just as exciting, if sometimes more exciting, than a trout. So what are your thoughts about, first of all, that reputation of fly fishing? And second, um, what would you suggest to overcome that? Give us some advice. Well, no, you're absolutely right, uh, and and it's it's true too. I mean, you you know, right now you can go into a fly shop and drop nine hundred and fifty dollars for the latest fly rod from uh, you know from Winson or Sage or any of these others. But having said that, the the technological advances in the creation of fly rods and reels and lines and so on has been going on long enough that you can also walk in and buy a $150 outfit that will be completely adequate for, for fly fishing. Uh, so it does, have, it does have an elitist um, uh, aura to it, but that's only part of it. I mean, as you say, I mean, some of the fondest moments I've had in the last 50 years have been walking around a, a farm pond in southeast Ohio throwing little popping bugs with a fly rod to sunfish. I mean, it's... And if you want to, if you want to introduce somebody to fly fishing, you can't do any better than that because if they're with you, as soon as that little popping bug hits the water, there's a fish on it, and they see the whole thing. They see the, the fly land. They see the take. They see the the catch. They see the release. The whole business. So, uh, and I, I had a wonderful um, eye-opening experience uh, several years ago with a friend of mine up in Michigan. 
who kept telling me, you've got to come up and fish for carp in uh, Traverse Bay, Grand Traverse Bay. And I had been hearing about this for years, that, that uh, all over the United States, people are fly fishing for carp. And I thought, well, I'd love to try it. So I went up uh, about three or four years ago, and it was an astonishing experience. I mean, these fish are huge, like 20 pounds. And uh, they're spooky. They're, they're in some ways spookier than trout or bass. And even the fly line, the shadow of the fly line coming over the water would, would make some of these fish light out, take out. Uh, but when you got one, it was amazing. I mean, they, they're real bulldogs. And they would take you right to the backing of your fly line, you know. So it would be 20 minutes to get one in. You'd bulldog them in. Um, and they're huge. They're like 20 pounds. <laughs> I mean, you couldn't ask for anything better if you wanted um, you know, just want fun and, and doing something. But you can do that with bass. You can do it with sunfish. I used to f use a fly rod in salt. I grew up on Long Island Sound in southern Connecticut. I used to use a fly rod for weak fish and uh, snapper blues. I mean, it's just, there's no end to what you can use. Pike now, muscalinge, huge uh, niche fisheries. And you can do that almost anywhere. They're warm water fisheries. You don't need to be necessarily fishing for trout in a you know, in a pristine 55-degree uh, stream in Montana. I mean, you can do it, do it almost anywhere. And that's one of the great things about it. Um, and again, the, the, the quality and the availability of really modestly priced equipment is, is great. It's one of the great breakthroughs I've seen in, in, in the last many years, um, but quite different than when I was growing up where, you know, you just didn't have much to choose from. Now you do. So, yeah, it's, uh, it's, I encourage everybody to try it. And, you know, also... One of the one of the, the hallmarks of uh, the kind of the elite sporting world is Orvis. Um, they've been in business since 1856. But if you if you go to an Orvis shop, they have a, a program called Fly Fishing 101, and they do it in gradations. And almost every city now has an Orvis shop, and they will introduce you to at no cost to to, to the rudiments of fly fishing, fly casting. It does take a little practice. Uh, not as hard as people make it out to be. It's, it can be learned pretty quickly. And uh, you can get uh, quality material. Orvis has a couple of opening, you know, sort of beginning level entry uh, uh, sets of equipment. Just ideal, just perfect. So uh, almost anywhere. And I'm sure L.L. Bean has something similar. Cabela's has something similar. So there are a lot of opportunities to do it. And if you can't do that, join a fly fishing club like uh, Northern Kentucky Fly Fishers because that's it's like family. Everybody wants to see the new members initiated into the into the wonderful mysteries of fly fishing. And I know the the, the uh, Trout Unlimited group that I belong to is all like everybody wants to help everybody else. Particularly when a new member comes in, they want to give them even down to giving equipment away, uh, tying flies for them. There's just all kinds of. It's a wonderful uh, kind of brotherhood and sisterhood. And. In, at IFFF and, and TU, all, uh, Isaac Walton Lee, I guess, is another one. I don't belong to that, but I know I've heard people t tell me that as well. So, so if you want to fly fish, there's a there's a way to do it. Probably right within your neighborhood, actually. But. Yeah, and we we love to have people because one of a part of the emphasis of Northern Kentucky fly fishers is that this is a sport that's available to everyone. Um, in, in many instances, it, it is people's families. Uh, their wife has died, or their children have moved away, and so on and so forth, and it truly becomes more than just a club. And it's a great place to learn how to fly fish from a wide variety of people right. who know what they're doing. Uh, and we also have 
trips every month, every single month. Some of them North Carolina, some to a farm pond. So it is a great way to. Uh, to well, learn. you're you're a, you're in a special position because I, I I don't think I've ever seen a fly fishing club that has as much activity as yours does. I mean, there's something almost every day that's going on. It's just that's remarkable. And again, given what you said before, given where you are, not a trout stream in sight. You know, it's un that's unusual. That's really a rarity, actually, and uh, and 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 worth worth crowing about. <laughs> and we're so, glad to welcome so. uh, Bob as a life member of Northern well, Kentucky. Thank you, uh, fly fishers. I'm honored. You started. I don't know if it was the first, but certainly one of the first college courses in literature and fly fishing. What uh, was going on there? Why? I did. I had, uh, well, at, in, in, I guess it was, as I was thinking about retiring back in the late 90s, I really started to ramp up my, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm essentially a, a print-oriented person. I mean, I did research. I published many books. and So I go at something by reading what's out there, what's available. And once I got started reading fly fishing literature, I realized, A, I would never get through it all because it's 500 years worth. Uh, but B, it was endlessly interesting, fascinating to me. And I, I read and read and read for several years. And uh, I was in a, a good position at Ohio University. I was a senior member of the faculty, and I had, had, a, long, I had a long career, you know, teaching graduate students and upper division students. And I was in the I directed the honors program in the English department for several years, and so I was involved in that. So I, I had my, I, I pretty much had my dibs on whatever course I wanted to teach. I didn't have to be in line for, uh, for anything. And I proposed to my chairperson at the time that I would, uh, I would like to do a senior seminar, senior level seminar on the literature of fly fishing. And I presented a prospectus and so on. And, and uh, they were they were happy with it. It wasn't a big. They were cat. Th those classes were capped at 15 students, so it was a nice, intimate kind of group. I think I ended up with 12. Uh, only one or two of them knew anything about fly fishing, and uh, so I gave them casting lessons. Thing, but mostly they were English. Ma they were senior English major, so there was a lot of very good reading. And of course, we did a river runs through it, and uh, there are a number of very very fine collections of uh, nonfiction writing on fly fishing. We did a lot of that. And that one of the high points of the, of the class was, uh, this was in the spring of 2002, uh, Jim Harrison, who by then had become a good friend of mine, I had just published a collection of interviews with the University of Mississippi Press with Jim called Conversations with Jim Harrison. And we had invited him to the annual literary festival at, at Ohio University, which has gone on every year for 35 or 36 years, and he was one of the featured writers, and, uh, and uh, I, I, uh, I told Jim, I said, I'd love to have you come to talk to my, my fly fishing class, and we had done, an, uh, we had done a couple of his essays from uh, Just Before Dark, a wonderful book on, on uh, outdoor sports that he, had, he published with Clark Canyon Press, and he came in and talked to the class for 90 minutes, and and they were just agog, you know. I mean, here was a guy who had a lifetime of fly fishing experience, among other things, besides being a remarkable, uh, you know, one-of-a-kind writer. One of the one of the great, profound influences in my life was know, knowing Jim so well for 20 years. 
and it, so it was, it was those kinds of things, I think, that really gave the class a certain amount of aura. And, and it was, uh, you know, I consider it a success. I, I really enjoyed it. And whether any of them went on to, uh, you know, become avid fly fishermen after that, I'm not sure. Uh, but uh, for the moment, they were fully invested in it. So we, we had a great time. <laughs> but, uh, so they used to see us. They used to, I used to take the class out every... Every once in a while, we'd go out on the, the back yard or back of the English department, and we'd, I'd br bring in like eight or ten fly rods and rig them up, and they would all cast, and, and they would follow instructions from the river runs through it, although I, I had to admit that those instructions were not always the best. But still, they would, they would get a feel for what, particularly what McLean was talking about in terms of the, fly, the action of the fly rod and so on. So, it was it was just a lot of fun, and and since then I think a number of number of college there's a there's a professor Greenway at Hiram College, who I think does a regular fly fishing course, and and I've heard from other people around the country that they've either taken that class or people do it on a, on an irregular basis. But yeah, I think it's I think it's great. The literature of fly fishing, as I, I've said many times, is really quite rich. I mean, there are just some absolutely wonderful and they're not all in the past I mean we, you know some of us some of them are still with us Tom McGuane's Longest Silence is just a remarkable book and a young uh, poet and, and actually fly fishing guy named Chris Dombrowski who lives in Missoula Montana uh, has just published a book called Body of Water which is about a Bahamian uh, uh, bonefish guide and it's it's an re absolutely remarkable book it's getting all kinds of attention as well it should it's just a great book because it's a it's a great literary piece of work first, and it's, it just happens to be about fly fishing, you know. And uh, McGuane's books are that way, too. And, uh, uh, Norm McLean is another one. Nick Lyons is another one. Uh, Chris Camuto, I mean, just a, Ted, Ted Leeson. These are, all, these are all people who are writers first and um, sportsmen second, you know. So they're not how-to manuals, but they're, they're uh, how you feel when you do that particular sport, you know, uh, without which I, for one, would be bereft. You know, I can't imagine not, not having that. My reading has, has evolved over time. I, I started out with how-to literature um, and then evolved into uh, I went here or there, a story about one of my fly fishing experiences. And it's not that I don't read that literature anymore, but my reading has actually evolved into reading um, books like A River Runs Through It, Body of Water, where fly fishing is a metaphor. It's a character, but um, the story is the main thrust. And uh, I particularly enjoy uh, those books today. Yeah, no, I think it's absolutely right. I, I, I have a, in the preface of uh, Angling Days, I. I have a little comment in there that um, the the river that runs through it. I mean, that's a wonderful metaphor, no matter how you how you look at it. Uh, the river that runs through it is not necessarily uh, the big Blackfoot or the Beaverhead or uh, the Elk River in West Virginia. It's the, the uh, it's the river of words. It's the river of narrative. You know, that's the that's the river that runs through it all. Because that's what binds everything together. It's the narrative. It's the ability to, you know, to put together these somewhat disparate elements that all somehow become part and parcel of what I call a surround, everything that's going on around the fly fishing. And that just happens to be 
what I'm interested in. I had chapters in Angling Days. One is about the suicide of a friend of mine who was a fly fisherman. Another one is about falling in the Madison River and losing all my equipment. And, and then there are, there, are, there are a bunch like that, you know. Uh, one is about after getting divorced and being sort of at loose ends. And, I mean, so, but those are all part and parcel of it. You know, if I, I can't think about, I can't think about those experiences without, uh, uh, by separating them from what I was doing at that, at that moment. That's all part of that. that. And I think that's sort of what qua that gives you that sense of the, what I would call loosely men, just sort of a literary take on, on, the, on the fly fishing stuff, you know. Uh, but, uh, yeah. Gives gives some meaning to it. Uh, anyway. I, I've recently been uh, impressed um, and just learned about uh, some college clubs that exist in Kentucky, um, Bowling or uh, Western Kentucky University, which is in uh, Bowling Green, Kentucky, which is even less of a fly fishing destination than Northern Kentucky, uh, has a fly fishing club as well as courses in fly fishing for credit uh, courses as a part of their recreation degree. And they take kids out to Montana. They get scholarships from various and sundry companies. The University of Kentucky has a fly fishing club. They actually call it a team, and they compete nationally. And as a matter of fact, the head of the team is a woman, which is very exciting. And uh, Northern Kentucky Fly Fishers is trying to, or attempting to form a student club uh, at Northern Kentucky University. And our approach is this is a student club. We're not trying to incorporate them into our fly fishing club, it's a bunch of old fogies, but we want it to be their club. We, we are getting support from faculty members. We'll provide teaching and starting equipment and take them places, but we've emphasized that this is their club what, have you seen other examples of colleges getting involved in this recently? You know, that's an interesting question. I've heard that, and I don't have I don't have any direct experience with it, but I've heard that that's true. Um, and of course, the model for that was um, uh, at Penn State. You know, uh, there was a long history. George Harvey and uh, others who had uh, started the fly fishing program at Penn State back in the, I'm gonna, I wanna say the 50s, maybe the 60s, but that's, that was sort of the model, the model for, for these programs. If, to, to tell you the truth, uh, I, I'm surprised that there isn't more of it uh, because that was a very, very successful model. And there's a lot you can teach. Um, and having, uh, having taught a, f a fly fishing course through my TU group, you know, you can teach about environment, you can teach about water quality, you can teach about air quality, you can teach about all kinds of ecological um, uh, relationships, uh, you can teach fly fishing, fly casting, fly tying, <laughs> fish identification, bird identification. I mean, it is, it's an absolute cornucopia of material that would come out of that one class that, we, that would cross boundaries. You could go to the English department, you could go to the biological sciences department, you could go to the you know, environmental, uh, environmental department, ecology department, and there's all history. All these departments can play in, can play into it. And I'm actually surprised that there isn't there isn't more of that. And I think I think it would be a, a great thing to see because it, one of the great things about it would be it would recruit 
begin to recruit uh, young people into the sport. And most, most hunting and fishing ventures nowadays, and I think demographically this is probably true, uh, tend to be populated by older, the older segment of the population. Um, so this would be a way to get people involved in younger people coming into it and give new blood and new ideas and everything that goes along with it. And the other thing, as you mentioned earlier, is more and more women are becoming visible in fly fishing. And that's, I, 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 when I did a stream, the uh, American writers on, on fly fishing, uh, there are, I think, 28 uh, contributors that five of them are women. I was absolutely went out of my way to, to just, to, and there are just some wonderful women writers out there who are also fly fisher, fly fisher people. And uh, it's becoming more and more apparent every day now. You have a, a number of really high profile women anglers now who are seen widely and they're going around giving talks and whatnot. So it's, a, it's an area that, that just could, uh, like any area, can just profit from all kinds of burgeoning interests and across demographics and so on. Um, one of the things that I've really been taken with in the fly fishing community is their tremendous support of causes like casting for recovery, teaching women who are breast cancer survivors or have breast cancer fly fishing, and actually Project uh, Healing Waters. Project no, Healing Waters, right, where right, we take right. uh, disabled vets fishing, tie, uh, fly, teach them how to tie flies and build rods. Um, real recovery devoted to uh, men who are cancer survivors or have cancer. These are national movements. And I know Northern Kentucky Fly Fishers is intimately involved in every single one of them and devotes lots of uh, volunteer time, uh, as well as financial resources to support these organizations. And I've been so impressed with how the fly fishing community has embraced these incredibly important, and there's actually statistically significant studies that have been done how this impacts people's psychological state in the case of breast cancer survivors, development of the muscles Muscle, that might have sure. been uh, right. lost as a result of uh, surgery, right. and so on and so forth. You want yeah. to comment? Well, on no, that? I mean, you know, again, here's another way to look at the old uh, accusation that fly fishing is an elite operation. I mean, this is absolute grassroots stuff from the bottom up, you know? Uh, and uh, so every time I hear somebody say, well, you know, that's an elitist sport, I say, well, what about this? You know, we're, we do all kinds of things for, to, to filter down in that regard. But, you know, if you think about, just think about your own experience. When you go fishing, I, I, don't, <clears throat> I don't have this anywhere else in my life. Even, and I, I do an enormous amount of chasing my bird dogs around in the woods. I, I, I mean, following them around. But I don't have any experience in my life outside of fly fishing in which I am totally immersed in the moment. I never think about anything. When I'm on the stream, and maybe two or three, four hours, I may jot a few things down in a notebook, and the, but I don't think about anything else. And if you were a cancer survivor, or if you had uh, 
dire wounds from, from war. I can only say that people invest in those experiences because for, at least for the time, it's therapeutic, you know? It, it, your, your mind is released from whatever those bonds are that, that make you aware of your own frailty or your, uh, uh, however you want to think about that. And, uh, and it's like that, Jim Harrison used to say this all the time. He was very fond of uh, an anecdote he had heard about India where uh, crazy people would be tied up next to a river for days at a time. And eventually, he would, he would always say, they would forget what their problems were. <laughs> they would become part of that flow. And I, you know, I always think about that. I'm, I'm butchering it a little bit. But I would always think about that in regards to, to, you know, to fly fishing, or any kind of fishing, really, but particularly on moving water. You know, when you're seeing, I said this earlier, I mean, you see that sense of time going right by your your waders, you know what I mean? And there it is, and uh, what are you going to do about it, you know? That's your life going down going downstream. And for a little while, you forget all the other artificial mechanical attachments and everything else, and you're just there in that moment. And, and that's what makes, uh, you know, the catching of a trout, let's say, on a dry fly, so special because it becomes a kind of moment that's just... It can't be pre-planned, but it's just all of a sudden it's there, and you're you're in it, and whether you catch the fish or not, you've seen something take place that has a kind of perfection all of its own. You know, it's a trout going after a uh, some kind of insect, and you may get it, and you may not, <laughs> and you're there. <laughs> you know, and if you're lucky, you hook it, and you have that throb on the end of the rod, and it goes right to your heart. It comes down the rod through your arm, and it goes right to your heart. You know, and you feel like uh, I'm part of something larger. You know, than I than it might be might be otherwise. So fly fishing does that, and all these and the project healing water and uh, all, all of them are just great that way. You know, just just terrific. Take people out of themselves a little bit. What could be better than that? You know. Well, Bob Demont, I want to thank you for coming to the Greater Cincinnati area, to joining us at Northern Kentucky Fly Fishers, and also sharing your artistry and experiences with our community. I would encourage anyone who hasn't read the books to get a hold of a copy of A Stream, A Field, Angling Days, which is the most uh, recent book, which was just published um, last fall. Last June, yeah. And, uh, and uh, do some reading and uh, delve into the art and sport of fly fishing. Um, my name's Tim Guilfoyle, and I'm with Northern Kentucky Fly Fishers. And I would like anyone in the greater Cincinnati area that has the slightest inkling of learning more about fly fishing to contact us. Our website is nkff.org. And uh, my name is Tim Guilfoyle. And uh, I would encourage you to contact us. I would love to go fishing with you. Um, thank you for joining us today on the 12th story at the Mercantile Library. We encourage you to subscribe via your preferred podcast app. We're available on iTunes Store and on SoundCloud. And if you like listening, tell your friends or tweet us at Mercantile Live. That's at M-E-R-C-A-N-T-I-L-E-L-I-B. Today's podcast was directed and engineered by Chris. 
Special thanks to our guest, again, Bob DeMott. The 12th Story is a production of the Mercantile Library in downtown Cincinnati. Our theme music was created by Doug McDimert. Don't forget to visit us online at www.mercantilelibrary.com where you can learn about our library and upcoming events. They are outstanding. Have a great week. <laughs>